It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Crash MotoGP podcast, episode 24. And at the moment, MotoGP is uh, having a little bit of a rest for a week at least, but never fear, uh, we at Crash certainly are not. And we have got a very exciting show today, as well as discussing uh, the latest news on MotoGP's record-breaking provisional calendar for 2022 and the goings-on currently in Indonesia. Uh, We have a special guest on the show for you this week, alongside myself, Harry Benjamin, at the usual suspects, Pete McClellan. Clarence, Keith Hewin, and I'm very pleased to say we are joined by former rider, BT Sport Pundit, and now team owner, Michael Laverty. Michael, welcome to the show. How are you getting on? Yeah, good. Thanks, Harry. Uh, nice to join you boys for a bit of a chat, but yeah, it's been a busy few weeks, so um, it's starting to calm down a little bit now, so it can actually enjoy a little bit of rest between the, the two GPs, but ready to travel to Mazzano next week. It really has been busy for you. Yeah, your uh, idea of calming down and everyone else's idea of calming down are two different things, Michael. <laughs> that means you're only doing six jobs this month. Um, I've got to say that I'm going to blow a bit of smoke immediately straight up your kilt in that I, I am mega impressed, and as I think we all are around the world, at how one man manages to cover so much ground <laughs> without falling down and, and basically exhausted. Uh, I, I mean, I think there's probably three Michael Abbotties, and one of them, the one we've got at the moment, is on the book at home for babysitting duty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks, I mean, is it, it is. I don't it, know it how you do it, but is there a I'm special technique? You, you only sleep one hour a day or something. Are you actually an alien? <laughs> I like my sleep, which is the strange thing, but I'm a bit of a. I, I work into late at night, so I'll, I'll go to bed at one and sleep through to nine or ten a.m. So I do get my rest because it's it's impossible to do it, to 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 travel the world and, and do everything we do without actually getting that rest and recovery. But it has been a case of almost pushing those limits a little bit too far lately where you start to feel a possibility of a little bit of burnout. So you have to be careful because I have tried to be everywhere, tried to 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 race myself in world endurance, tried to be doing all the work with BT Sport, my academy. Then whenever this opportunity came to, to ha- have my own team in Moto3 to put all the structure together to find the staff, to find the funding was the most important thing to find the sponsors, please them, all the technical partners. It's still an ongoing process. At least I've got some time and I will get some staff eventually to help me. But at the minute, it is a one-man band and I'm trying to, to juggle quite a few balls. But once everything's up and running, I hope I'll be able to delegate a little bit, offload some, still work on BT Sport as a pundit, and then I'll do my work between the events to make sure everything's running smoothly with the team and with the kids back home in the UK. So we're going to have a few different teams uh, as a development platform for for the young talent as well so it's uh, yeah it's a big it's a big task but one 
I'm envying because I, I think it's a massive gap in the in in racing in the UK that we're going to fill. Was it always something, Michael, that you wanted to do? Really. Did you have a, an eye on this for a while, or did it just sort of come out of nowhere for you? That the <laughs> idea of a Moto Three team it came out of nowhere. It really did. It was never my intention, desire. I'd never really sat down and said I'd love to own my own team, but. Um, I think I just was in the right place at the right time, spoke to the right people, had the right connections. And all of a sudden, when we lost the Grassini team and the Patronas team from Moto3, there were grid lots available. And it just so happened I had spoke to Mike Trimby only a few weeks prior and said that we there is that gap. We do need, if we're going to bring through their next MotoGP riders from the UK, we need a landing platform. We need somewhere for them to come to enter this paddock with um with a team who want them there. I know in the past from my brother and from Chaz Davies and from actually further down the line before that, it's been better in recent years with uh, Scott Redding, Cal Crutchlow and, and Bradley Smith. But before that, it was really difficult. You landed in an Italian or a Spanish team who didn't really want you and you were always fighting a losing battle. Whereas it's been a bit easier, but now we need to provide opportunities a little bit sooner. So before you're actually established. So whenever I've been talking about this so long, I'd mentioned it to Mike Trimby. And then all of a sudden he gave me a call and said, can you come for a chat? And the opportunity was there. So I immediately went to work with my sponsors and, and tried to put something together in the short time frame we had before the, the deadline arrived that um, for that with 30, you had to put your application in. So we got it in. I got to, I didn't reach my target budget wise, but I got close enough that I was content that I would, I would find the rest that, that was needed. And uh, yeah, I've been working hard on that since. So yeah, to answer your question, I had no, if you'd have mentioned it to me a month before it happened, I would have had no plans, no desire, no um, no, no forward thinking on it. But then it's sometimes, as they say, opportunities present themselves and you got to jump in. And it was one of those where it seemed like I have talked about it for so long and I was in the right place to make it happen. So I thought, you know what, someone has to step up and why not me? Those grid slots are incredibly valuable. I mean, normally they don't they don't get offered out there. I mean, they're, they're oversubscribed. There are people that are on the doorstep of Erta, Mike Trimby obviously being the main man there. It's a very rare situation, but it kind of underlines how much Dorna want this British market to work, isn't it? Exactly that. I had spoke to people that had tried to access the paddock in the past and get grid spots and got refused. So I knew that it was a case of a window opening for us that wasn't going to be, we might not be able to pry that open in a year's time if I had a waited when I was probably better positioned to make it happen. So the the grid slot availability was the key issue to, to making this happen now without actually, you know, having that business plan in place and the, and coming to Erda and Dorna and saying that, you know, in two years time or whatever, we will have the, have the team already built and we'll have the structure. So I guess there's two things there. There's, there's, um, purchasing a current infrastructure and, and having the staff availability and and then the grid spots as well so yeah uh, and then having the support of erda having the support of dorna because they they do they're acutely aware that they're that, that we will tick that box that that hasn't been there for a number of years what's going on back in the paddock this is a tricky one for you michael but i know you'll be able to handle it i mean obviously at the moment we've got you know a, a kids that are, are finding themselves in some difficulty there's there's a, there's a there's a terrible feeling around the paddocks of, of the fact that we've lost three four after last weekend another youngster 16 year old filipino that was killed at buriram in thailand in a 150 underbone race you know generally because they're young you know the feeling is is that too young is is there an age cut off for, for 
being killed in a race. Of course, there's not. But the fact is that when it's that young, um, people feel it just that little bit more and it creates bad publicity around the world. I mean, what's the feeling in the paddock? You're close to it at the moment. What is, what is the situation regarding you as a team owner now, as, a, as an academy owner, the, the young academy that you started last year? I mean, these things must be playing very heavily on your rather overworked mm. brain, I would think. Yeah, it's something I've given a lot of thought about and actually had to discuss with my title sponsor with Vision Track before they came on board. Obviously, the the publicity that could surround their company if, if something untoward were to happen to a rider on one of our bikes. So yeah, I had to be aware of that. We discussed it. We There's no easy fix right now, but I know there is some discussions going on or there seems to be about a possible age limit change in you know you look at the junior world championship it's 15 years old for a moto 3 world championship bike then 16 and gp could both those get lifted one year each that's a possibility but at the same time there are some experienced riders in there that are the ones that are creating some of the the havoc so they've been in the gp paddock for a couple of years they're they're they've got enough experience they should know better and you watch that they're the ones who do the swerving down the straight so there is a culture of um almost the the riders feel they're invincible at times so they never close the throttle they don't think of their fellow man alongside them on on the track whereas i always was brought up to acutely aware of the dangers i think because i grew up in ireland and the road racing scene and lost so many friends before i friends or friends of my father's or friends of friends so i i knew what the sport could do but when you grow up racing in small um, mini bikes and you can crash those easily you can bump off your mate and you feel like you get away with things then you get onto a moto three bike and you've got an airbag you've got massive runoff you feel it and hodgie actually spoke about it last week about when someone passes you in a moto three bike they creep past so it almost gives you a little bit of a, a strange sensation that you're not actually traveling that fast because they're creeping past and you feel like you can nudge them or you can swerve but all of a sudden the knock-on effect when there's 10 15 bikes around you is it can be it can create a massive disaster so there's there's no easy fix right now i'd love to see um the riders treating each other with a little bit more care but obviously they all want to win nobody wants to close the throttle they don't want to leave that extra few um you know another meter of gap from the front wheel to the back wheel will make the difference but it also makes the difference in how much slipstream you get so you can see why they do it why they're they're not prepared to roll off for a split second but you can also see what's happening when the 14-year-olds the jump on a, an Asia Talent Cup bike, on a British Talent Cup bike, and they ride that same way as the, the, the guys they're trying to emulate and trying to race against in a few years. They, they, they do that same riding style, and then it, they don't have the experience. They don't have the skill to get out. They get target fixation, and that seems to be the problem. When, when a rider goes down in their path, there's nothing you can do. They've never experienced that, and there's no room for error. So there's a number of things going on and a number of, possible solutions but there's no one fix it's going to be a number of things that we heard from Jürgen van der Gerberg about the gearbox scenario where if we change the ratios and close those gaps it meant that you wouldn't get as much of an advantage with slipstream perhaps that that's one thing and uh, more horsepower so as it makes the difference between the, the riders but you'll still end up with them um, with the closeness it's something we've wanted for years that parity where everyone's got the same equipment but then it means there's no possibility to break away so double-edged sword and unfortunately no one one solution available right now we've talked about this situation for for in so many episodes of these podcasts and actually i just want to bring in pete as well because um pete has, has suggested multiple times that this idea of having you know more experienced riders sort of almost giving a kind of a coaching session every every weekend almost pete i don't know if you want to explain that a bit more and see see what michael thinks of that 
Yeah, exactly as you say, Harry. I mean, just that you you get the impression that sometimes they're caught up in situations, as Michael was explaining then, that they may be not prepared for. You know, they are incredibly talented. They've done a lot of top level racing, but, you know, suddenly they're in a, a Grand Prix championship or they're on a Grand Prix size circuit, let's say. It's a different thing. It's a big challenge, isn't it? And I just think that, you know, having someone that could maybe someone that they respect as in someone that's been there and done that saying to them, look, this is what you need to watch out for. This is where you draw the line. You know, this is fair racing and this isn't. And this is, I, th I think that could maybe help because as Michael says, there's not going to be one solution to this problem. It's going to be chipped away at from multiple, multiple angles. And that's what I think all that we can hope for is to reduce these sort of tragedies that we've seen by working in, in, in you know, maybe half a dozen different areas. Yeah, it's interesting that obviously, the likes of Valentino is the the perfect person to have a sit down with all those riders, with all his experience, with the 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 um the adulation that he would receive from the young riders. They would listen to what he says because obviously when they sit down in front of the stewards, it's not they're not taking it on board, and the penalties haven't worked to this level. Obviously, with uh, Jan, uh Denis Onju being kept at home for two weekends might make them think a little bit. There's going to be serious consequences. I'm going to be taken off the grid, but actually getting something to sink in from their their um, the, the god of MotoGP over the last number of years that would be a, a perfect scenario in a classroom format where they sit down face to face with their rivals shake hands and they know who that they're 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 playing with each other's lives and they got to 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 treat them with, with care Let's hope then that they don't have access to any archive. <laughs> That's true. Because they might just find that uh, <laughs> that um Years in the past, particularly Valentino and, Mark, and Mark yeah. Marquez, of course, <laughs> yeah. the latest of them. There's going to be uh, quite a bit of archive that shows that they were also naughty boys in their time. Yeah, that's true. That's, <laughs> that's thing, very true. <laughs> Michael, speak. You know, talking of riders, you've got a, you know an all British lineup coming for for Moto Three. I imagine, as with everything to do with that um, team setup, it's all come a bit last minute. But you've gone with Scott Ogden and, and Joshua Waitley. How did they come onto your radar? I and mean, what is it about them that that you feel that they are? Um, you know, it's their time to to make the step up to, to Moto Three. Well, the the whole ethos was for the team was to provide opportunities, and they are the the two next young riders from the UK who are ready. They're, they've been through the, the both race in the British Talent Cup. Actually, myself and Keith commentated on them in 2018, and Scott was up there battling. Uh, he won it the very next season in 2019. They've both been racing in Junior World Championship this year, and that has to be, uh, for me, looking at the, the GP team, The any kid that comes to join us will have to have spent at least one year in the Junior World Championship. That is the training ground. So both um, Scott and Josh, Scott's won a race this year in Hareth. Josh has been in the top 10 several times. So they were ready and they ticked those boxes for me. And um, it's going to be a rookie season where they may surprise us, but I'm not expecting um, podiums or top fives. You know, they've got to go in there and learn. And we may get some some surprising results and brilliant if we get it. If not, there's no pressure on them. So um, it's then creating the, the next step so since we've actually announced the team there's been interest obviously I, I dipped my toes this year in the British Talent Cup I had one rider for most of the season in the last couple of rounds I added a second so we're going to grow that next season but we're also looking now for the the next steps of the European Talent Cup I don't think Junior World Championship would be a step too far but maybe European Talent Cup and putting a couple of bikes down there so we've got the top riders in the British Talent Cup now that don't have anywhere to go they don't have that next step so we could provide that next season as well have a couple of um, vision track bikes down there for 
perhaps the likes of Johnny Garness or Casey O'Gorman if he doesn't get his ride. The 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 top riders from the UK. So we have we've got mini bike riders at ten years old. Then we've got British Talent Cup riders at twelve. Uh, European Talent Cup riders at thirteen, and then we've got World Championship riders who are sixteen and seventeen. So I want to to have that clear path, and that and if if young riders want to be World Championship riders of the future, that's the ladder they need to get on. So so yeah, Josh and Scott are the 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 most likely candidates. They ticked all the boxes for me. They're both young kids that I've known for years. I met Scott actually at a at Wilton Mill Kart Track maybe twenty seventeen and. And actually rode his pit bike and and met him and his father for the first time back then. So I've always watched his career progress. So it's um and it's been he ticks all the boxes. He's a hard worker. Likewise, Josh Watley, our, his father was a sponsor of James Ellison back in the BSB day. So I always remember Josh before he raced himself flying about the BSB paddock on his mountain bike. And so I've known known both kids for a lot lot of years, and it's nice that I can provide that opportunity for them to progress into world championship racing. You mentioned Casey O'Gorman. He's come through for rookies, hasn't he? He's coming into yeah. the rookies class next year, I think. He's been selected to join the Red Bull rookies, which is a – it seems like all of a sudden – I mean, it was going to happen here, wasn't it, that, that, that your interest with the academy that you set up and, and the, the pathway that you were you foresaw some time ago and we talked about so so many times. But now all of a sudden there's a few riders that are just beginning to just tickle the edges of, the, of, of, of that ladder and, and go into the places that we might expect them to go. I mean – from a from an academy owner point of view, I mean, what is the 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 ladder like? What is the pool that you're drawing from like? Are we are we at the beginning of that process? Are we in the middle of that process? Where do you see us as a as a nation, if you like, Britain and Ireland together? Actually, we have a lot of talent. So you know, you look at the, at the riders we've got in World Superbike now. If any of those had have had the opportunity that's available now for a Moto3 rider. So you're Jonathan Ray's, you're Tom Sykes, my brother Eugene, Leon Kamir, um, uh, Leon Haslam. There's so many riders. I've, I've missed a few out. They were all potential um, MotoGP riders alongside Cal Crutchlow. And now we've got Sam Lowe's, Jake Dixon, John McPhee, all good riders, but it's took them a little bit longer to get to the level they're at. They're you know approaching mid to towards, well, Sam's just in his 30s now. So, um, And then you look at... at back through the ranks. So in the British Superbikes now, we've got Taran McKenzie, we've got Bradley Ray, riders who rode the Red Bull Rookies, but then got lost for a year or two, had to go back to BSB. And they had that ability to be in, in GP, in, in Moto3, Moto2. And if the if we had had that structure, we'd have another MotoGP rider to fill Cal's boots immediately ready. Jake Dixon's arguably ready, but just the, the politics of it all, I don't think it's going to happen for him next year. But we do have that talent. And then looking below that, the, the talent pool, you mentioned Casey O'Gorman. Uh, there's Johnny Garness there. There's and actually below the, um, that, you've got uh, Carter Brown, Elvin Belfort, then uh, my young academy kids. And then I went to the FAB meeting at the weekend and seen some young, fantastic 10-year-olds. Johnny and Casey were both racing there. And you've got Ethan Sparks below that, Archie O'Brien. You've got um, the writers in my academy, um, it is. I think. I think we're 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 definitely we've got a good talent pool. We just need to to provide those opportunities. We need to give them time down in Spain throughout the winter on on the on the hot track conditions. Whenever we're here in the UK, riding around on wet tires and freezing cold conditions, we need to have the budget to be able to send them down there. They can ride kart tracks. They can ride dirt track. They can ride motocross. They can get all that experience under their belt, and it, it just brings on that development path. So. It is the, the 10,000 hour rule. You've got to put the time in when you're young. And unfortunately, in the UK, 
or the months of the year that we can actually really ride at that level are, you know, March is even cold, but March through to November and that's it, it stops. Whereas in Spain and in Italy, they ride year round and they put in so many hours by the time they're 15, 16, that they just, the development, the curve is, is so much shifted in their favor. So we need to shift it in our favor, but we've definitely got the talent. I, I've missed a load of names, even my own writer, Harley McCabe, who's won the FIM 160 series in the UK this year. He will go to Valencia to be in front of the FIM, in front of Dorna. So we've got a good talent pool. There's no doubt about that. There's plenty of riders. We just need to provide, we need the money and we need to provide those opportunities for them. John McPhee, you manage John McPhee. Yeah. You look after his interests. Um, now you've got his team <laughs> and he's not hired in it. How did that conversation go? Well, uh, to be honest, John, uh, I wanted John to, to move on and there were opportunities. We wanted him to move to Moto2 if possible. It became... A lot of those doors closed at the at the wrong time, and John was having a bit of a tough season, so it was a difficult sell. And he was uh, realistic on the the possibilities. There were good Moto three options available for him, and I didn't think um, I didn't think it was right to put John in our team or to try and make that happen. I thought to move him on somewhere else was a better scenario, and John was happy to do that. So we have found a solution. I can't tell you today what it is, but he will be back in the in the GP paddock next season. And um, yeah, it won't be won't be with us, unfortunately, as you as you said. But um, but yeah, I think John's been very unlucky this season. He's got a lot more potential, a bit untapped. But it was nice to see that aggressive ability to to lead that race in in Austin last um, weekend. He was just so strong in that race, so that's what he's capable of. And yeah, I look forward to seeing him do it on a more uh, frequent basis next season. He looks brilliant. He's obviously a good motocrosser, <laughs> leading it to Kota. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> He did look brilliant going around the I America's track. I can't wait to see what the Formula One go like around there, Harry. On well, you know, they, they've, they've, I've, I saw in the news recently that F1 and MotoGP have sort of come together on this and said to Kota, look, you need to do something. Otherwise, you know, because this isn't, you know, these bumps are not good for the bikes, obviously, but I don't think they're going to like them for the cars too much either. So I think it may actually, uh, there may be a bit of cross-communication there and working together for the greater good. Wouldn't that be lovely? Um, now, I'm going to get into trouble if I don't ask uh, any of the millions of questions that have come in from our listeners, uh, Michael. And some of them you have covered off already. So, um, uh, But the, the first one I've got on here, and I suppose this comes with the idea of, of opportunities, uh, especially for, and I, I know we're an international show, but naturally when you, when you have four uh, British blokes on the podcast. It's going to be there is going to be a little bit of a sway here, so apologies for that, but we're going to go with it because Speed and Conviction has asked on Instagram the future of British riders. What is the ideal path? Now he said, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but my five-month-old son wants wants to be ahead of all the European riders. So what what do you say to someone who <laughs> is right at the start? What, what is what is the if, in an ideal world to get to, to let's say to get to MotoGP? What is the ideal path? Because there is so much talent, not just as you described uh, coming up through the ranks in in Great Britain, but you know internationally there is huge. Arguably, there's a, people are going to fall by the wayside, aren't there? Because there is there's so much talent and there aren't enough opportunities. Yeah, and that's the the thing. Actually, when you look back to the eighties, nineties, it was um, there was riders coming through in their mid twenties because they'd had to earn the money to go racing themselves and and go uh, kind of drudge out their own path and make their own career. Whereas now there are opportunities from from such a young age, and you have to unfortunately you have to have parents who have that desire to to have uh, to have you at kart tracks from your six seven years old on on little mini bikes. But yeah, I would say the ideal path for me is when you're when you're young, when you're 
five, six, seven, you're you're experiencing a little motocross bike, a little bike that slides and drifts, and actually not getting too involved in the racing scene because you don't want to burn out. You want them to have a passion for the sport. So those early years, do it for fun, experience a few different disciplines. Then when you are say seven, eight years old onto mini bikes and actually learning some racecraft, getting in amongst it in your national mini bike scene. Then from 10 years old, that's when it needs to be a bit more structured. And when you're around about 12, then starting to add training and nutrition into the program and and then, and then tougher competition and, and trying out different uh, bikes as well, getting those opportunities on. So in many bikes, it's all 10 and 12 inch wheels. Then you got to learn how to ride 17 inch wheels when you get up onto a Moto3. That's where Spain do it so well. They've got Moto 5s and Moto 4s and pre Moto 3s, all different variant horsepower engines inside those 17 inch wheel chassis. So, and they're pretty much proper little race chassis. We don't have that in the UK, but I plan to get hopefully a couple of Moto 4 bikes that we could use on cart tracks over here just to give the kids experience, bridge that gap. So, yeah, there's a lot of different, different, um, opportunities available or what path you could take, but I think a lot of it has to boil down to the finances not spending too much when you're young not treating the kids like a like a little robot and a professional and 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 um you know <laughs> cracking the whip on them you essentially want them to love this sport <laughs> you need to love it if you want longevity and so yeah give them instill that passion from an early age take them to events let them witness their their idols or make sure the the, the guys at the top of the sport become their idols and then, um, yeah, exactly. Just give them all, all those opportunities to learn what a bike feels like when it's drifting, when it's moving, when it's sliding. Then the 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 inputs on racecraft, then that can only come with with race knowledge and getting in there and and racing mm. in those championships. But five months might be a bit too soon. The other way, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other way, of course, has been the Jorge Lorenzo way and the Randy Mamola way. If you look at the way that they're. Uh, peers or their parents treated those guys i mean lorenzo was cracked had the whip cracked yeah. over him didn't he at the time and i think that mamola as well was pushed very hard very very early on um so there's got to be a balance somewhere in between those two ways isn't there definitely that's the key i think the obviously that that way works you get success from it you do get you get a fast young rider but it's um it, it can go the other way. You can burn them out. I've seen it so much. American motocross is a perfect example for that because they have an industry where the manufacturers support kids because they want to find their next supercross rider who's ready to go at 15. And their youth system is so it's, it's run like a professional race series and so many young fast kids that burnt out that, that reached their mid teens and they were over it. They had their best years when they were 10 years old. So there is that fine balance and it is sometimes um, finding the right people that actually take the kids away from the parents because you, you know, that parent influence, it always ends up, um, the, the relationship breaks at some point. That's why I'm surprised that Wayne Gardner stepped back. I, I thought he'd be the kind of personality that would be banging Remy's door all the time and giving him a hard time. And then we've got the, the situation that you'll be quite close with. I mean, we can talk about Remy if you like, but I, I've always been intrigued by the Casey Stoner story. And, of course, at the end of the day, your family, you know, your, your wife's family are very, very close with Casey. I mean, because when he came over here at a very young age with his parents, spent a lot of time with, with those guys. Um, and yet he did burn out very, very early. Luckily, as a as a world champion and a multimillionaire, which is a, not a bad way to leave things, I suppose. But at the end of the day, um, he left us really, really early. His talent wasn't done as no. far as I was concerned, and yet he was. Exactly that. And obviously, I, they'd spent a lot of time with us here when um, when they were in, in the UK. Casey was very friendly with Chaz. And so I got to know Casey quite well over the years. And 
he did lose his love of the sport. Not the sport. He loved riding bikes, but he lost the passion for the travel and all the stresses and the doing the media commitments and, and whatnot. But um, but he still loved to ride his bikes. But he just couldn't find a way to do that and still and and um, and still travel. Well, actually, the championship's going to be twenty one rounds next season. But it was a, a big commitment. So he did. He burned out too much too early. His talent could have gone on easily at that level for another five or six years if he had that desire. So that is the flip side of the coin. I think they have the extra uh, stresses of moving away from Australia. So you're so far from home for such long periods. And he did make his home in Europe, but he never quite felt at home. I know he lived in an apartment from in Monaco for a lot of years and it, it was soul destroying for him. It, he just, he's, he's a, from the bush, loves the outdoors, loves the open the open spaces, and he just didn't have that. So there's a lot of factors go in there, the stresses of making it through when they didn't have a lot of money behind them. Then when he was successful, then you argue over the money. And it's it's just um it's a tough one to to find that perfect scenario. A raw talent. He was a raw uh, a, in the end a polished diamond. He could do everything, but he was just such raw speed whenever I first witnessed him in the UK. And he went on to great things. But Colin saw that from such a young age, so he knew that he had that potential. Fantastic potential he had. But uh, I, I think he'd be he'd be looking at the calendar at the moment that they're proposing for next year and thinking, what? Have you looked at it? What do you make of that? Yeah, that is going to be a tough one. It is. It, well, obviously, the... For us on the Moto3 side, we get less testing, so you've only the one preseason test, but still 21 rounds over um, over a season, and then you've got multiple flyaways. Your flyaways at the start of the year, then obviously at the the first section in Asia, then in in Australia. So it's going to be a lot of time on the road, and I feel more for the mechanics that obviously the riders. It's one thing because they have the passion to jump on the bikes, but for the mechanics that adds an extra stress or an extra weekend away more time on the road it is it's going to be tough but um we knew it was going that way and i, I can foresee it going to 22 races in the future i think that might be the ceiling 22 but it's a it makes it a long season but there are a number of venues the one on the calendar and obviously if it makes commercial sense they will happen it, it really is a very lengthy character. It seems like in throughout motorsport, they're getting longer and longer every year. But it's interesting because there is still a bit of doubt. And uh, Pete, I know you've got a little bit on this as well with the Indonesia track, the new one um, that's going to come in for hopefully for next year for World Superbikes and MotoGP. But even that is looking a little bit in doubt at the moment, but they think it's all, all good. Can you just fill us in a bit about what's going on there? Um, well, there was this announcement from WADA um, a few days ago saying that uh, the national organizations for Indonesia and Thailand have, have been declared non-compliant. Now, there's different reasons for each of those rulings. I think with Thailand, they haven't incorporated into the or legally incorporated the latest rules or something like that. Indonesia was more to do with the sending of samples and that that seems to have been affected by the pandemic. So, um it's a bit unclear what the implications of this sort of non-compliance are, because when you look at, at what they could be, it says it could affect the hosting of world championships. Well, you know, World Superbike is supposed to go there in November, so there's not much time to sort something out. Now, the Indonesian um, sports minister is sort of assured that everything will be sorted out by then. So we'll have to sort of wait and see at the moment exactly what happens there. The one thing we do know is that it doesn't affect the the individual riders from those countries. So that's that's clear. You know, you've got people like Somkiak. Chantra in Moto2, those guys don't have to worry. It doesn't change anything for them. But certainly a bit of a question mark there for, for the Indonesian Indonesian rounds, especially because they're first on the calendar. Thailand is, is due to go back to October for, for 2022. So they've got basically a year to sort this out. 
Mm. Well, we'll be watching that one and bringing you all the latest as well on Crash.net. On on the subject of tracks, and I want to steer things sort of onto uh, this current season that we're uh, enjoying, a brilliant season of MotoGP racing. And uh, Michael, Carolyn Hughes has asked, uh, what is your favourite track, both UK and worldwide? Worldwide would uh, be Phillip Island. I think it's just such a lovely ribbon of tarmac and such a picturesque location. Any rider who rides there in those high-speed corners, wheel spinning, it's just unsurpassed anywhere the experience of riding that circuit and if I was going to choose a UK track it would be Silverstone I love the although it doesn't have the elevation that everyone uh, loves about Donington or Alton Park or Cadwell Park it, it's um it's got such high speed corners it's got a lot of history and actually to ride that track for me it's one of the best in the world the flow and the and how the corners link together and then um, obviously the new surface they laid down a couple of years ago i got to test it on a motor two bike and it was fantastic so i would say i would pick silverstone to go and, and i'm actually going there tomorrow for uh yamaha day just for a bit of a spin out mar one myself because i do i do love to, to just get out there when the opportunity presents itself so um yeah those would be my two favorites in uk and worldwide keith go on i'll ask you the same question <laughs> well all of my world was in black and white but and i and i perhaps don't go quite for the same safety situation but um brands hatch grand prix circuit if you if you ignore the fact that things are a little closer there than than you perhaps want them i, I, I there's no atmosphere for me like anywhere else than brands hatch in this country um moving on to uh, worldwide, it's going to be Mugello. I mean, like, I've, the the track that's that's there now is is you know it's it's just superb. It's just in a great place. I think for me, atmosphere has a lot to do with it as well. I think that that um, I, I love the atmosphere of those two race tracks, and I don't think you can beat them for that. But I, I've never ridden Phillip Island, so I, I I can't comment on that. But obviously, every rider I know says Phillip Island. The only thing that the downside of Phillip Island is, is you're going to have to wait 10 years for a decent set of weather for the weekend. Um, it can either be blowing a bloody gale or freezing cold, or it might be warm. Um, maybe. Um, I was very lucky. The first year I went there ever was in 2014, and the weather was, was beautiful. And I remember thinking, what's the matter with everybody? They all say it's going to be cold here. It's T-shirt weather. But, but every other time I've been since, it's been bloody freezing and blowing a gale. Um, I don't call one of the corners Siberia for that no. reason. <laughs> Um, but it is, it, I can understand Phillip Island, but I've never actually ridden it. I mean, turn one, they call it Duans, and I can understand why they call that one Duans as well. It's just one of the scariest corners anywhere in the world, I would think. You, you have got to be right on your game to get in there far. So, but no, yeah. long story short, Branzach and uh, top choices i would say thank you carolyn uh, for that question and we've had as well a lot coming in uh, on the subjects of this season in moto gp particularly uh, fabio quartararo of course leading the championship michael what have you made of this season so far i think it's been a, a brilliant year of racing uh, overall and, and fabio quartararo obviously standing out and standing tall amongst the rest and ricky i've picked up his question ricky don has sent in this why is fabio so good and the rest of the yamahas just can't seem to make it work as well as he can <laughs> the million dollar question for for both yamaha there and we go writers. yeah you got I think, it i think frankie morbidelli without the injury would have been at a similar level with 
similar equipment to Fabio. Obviously, he was an older bike, but um, for Valentino, I do think there's a element of the bike development path going a different way to his riding style. As of tires, they've gone a little bit softer in recent years. He likes a stiffer construction. He likes a bike that stops and goes, whereas now the Yamaha is all about corner speed, releasing that front brake and carrying momentum through the turn the way Jorge Lorenzo has done and the way Fabio does naturally. So it is they have clicked Fabio and the Yamaha are a perfect uh, pair and it, they are in unison. Whenever you see them, the the way he rides the bike, it's, it's just like gliding around the racetrack. I think last year he definitely struggled a little bit. That it, it he was he was over outperformed by his teammate, which was the first time, and he had really um, succeeded in in his rookie season, and he had, he had outclassed Fabio or Frankie then. So I think the psychological impact on that last season took a bit of getting his head around and he went to work on that over the winter and he's come back such a stronger package and he's been so consistent on his off days to still be in the top five to be battling for podiums whenever he really shouldn't be that's the mark of a champion that's where he's for me made the difference this season being able to to negate those those bad days and be so consistent and he is yeah he's phenomenal i think when you watch him on his time attacks his qualifying laps now he's transferred that into ultimate consistency throughout the race he is the real deal he probably is and actually this is this is going to be unfair now, right at the start of uh, our our podcast way back in i think when did we start this may um we all sort of submitted our our top three for the end of the championship uh probably a little bit foregone conclusion to ask you but i'm gonna ask you michael to name your top but top three your top three are there gonna be any changes do you think or is it is it a pretty done deal i think one and two is done with the peco and and um and fabio uh I would like to say Jack Miller will find his form to get that third place. Um, it's it's a difficult one to say. I think the Suzukis are still there. They still have a little bit of potential, but it's um, yeah a tough one to to say the third. Who who were who did you guys plumb for as your top three? Then was this preseason you selected? It was it was during the um, the summer break. So a lot ah, okay. in my defence, a lot has changed, and I'm mu- in my I'm much newer to the two wheeled world. I come from four wheels, so just a bit of a caveat here. I, I think I went Quartararo, but then no, I didn't. I didn't go. Oh my god, I put Zarco first because <laughs> at the time he was doing so. I went Zarco, Quartararo, and I can't remember. Oh, I've got it written down. I can't remember who's third, but I think I was. You both went Quartararo, I think, didn't you, Keith and Pete? It'd be stupid not to now. <laughs> <laughs> not getting involved no, in uh, anyway <laughs> yeah, i was quite pleased to see that even the boffin michael laverty was a bit cautious about who he was going to say in third place yeah. which is which is the name of our game the manager is so tricky i mean i i actually because i keep because i'm not miles in front of pete and harry when it comes to these predictions every week <laughs> i actually had a look today i actually did some i, I actually did some yeah. processing <laughs> this morning i thought i've got a bit of time i'll have a look and see and I still can't make me bloody mind up. If Joanne Mir could actually qualify, yeah. if, if Mir could qualify, then he'd be there yeah. or thereabouts. But he always gives himself too much work to do. Miz- you know, where we're going next time, Mizano, it's a great track. It works well for Suzuki. But but somehow he's always having to come through from, you know, what those first couple of corners are like. I mean, in the first lap, you can be pushed off, pushed out, pushed down, and your, your race is done early on already. But um, there you go. I love the way. I, I think... During the course, you know, 14 different riders, I actually wrote it down, 14 different riders have been on the podium this year in MotoGP. 14. It's incredible. Great series. 
great so competitive this year and we spoke we spoke obviously a lot about the the new british talent and and that that pool coming up but obviously the huge news this year michael valentino rossi's final year but it looks like you know there's some there are some great italian aces emerging particularly this year obviously we've got peco bagnaia up there you've got to look at also bastianini's had a great run and form the last few races so you know the the italian flag is not going to go anywhere despite rossi leaving at the end of this year is it no, no, definitely not. I think his legacy is well um, secure with his academy riders and, and the teams. Actually, he's going to have his, his MotoGP team and an influence on two Moto2 teams and a Moto3 team. So Valentino will be a, yeah. a very present figure in the paddock going forward. But I think, as you mentioned, Pecco on that current form, Bastianini really finding his feet and moving to the Grassini team. Digi stepping up into that team as well. We're going to lose Petrucci as well. Dobby's returning to the championship, so a, a legendary Italian name in there. Um, so they are really well fixed. They're well positioned uh, throughout the ranks. And and uh, I think Luca Marini quietly going about his rookie season will really step it up next next year. So I do believe that they are, um, I think they're reaping the benefits of, of the work Valentino has put in with the academy in the last five to ten years. Let me ask you something, Michael, while, you, while you're here, I think. Um, Dovi. I mean, Valentino's his best ride this year has been what an eighth place or something earlier on in the year. I think um, Dovi comes straight back in. I mean, anybody in the know would would automatically think that Dovi's going to not struggle, but certainly it's going to be a difficult task to to be competitive straight away. But he's looking for me, you know, Quattararo aside, bloody good on that Yamaha. I wonder if he's going to give us a shock by the end of the year. Whether he could, I'd like to say so. It's I think the the two day Mizano test came perfectly positioned for him so he got to dip his toes back into the paddock then he had a test and really figured it out and then he was really strong in Austria considering he's on the slowest bike in the grid I think the the speed of that bike's gonna probably keep him off off battling for the podium but I think he'll be in the in the the shout for a top eight finish before the end of the season which would be a really strong performance but I do believe next season on similar machinery getting a, a winter's test under his belt and adapting to the Yamaha. So obviously, as you mentioned, we did expect him to struggle because of the, the change in riding style from the Ducati that's imprinted in the, in his subconscious. He just rides to late break and stopping the thing, using the horsepower, and now he has to completely change his approach to every single corner. So he's really, I th- think, done well as a, is he 34, 35? It's hard at that stage of your career to really completely adapt how you approach, and he's done that really well in such a short window. So there was a few things. There was the the initial jump onto the bike and being at a similar level to Jake Dixon showed us actually Jake's level. But then obviously Dobby being given the time and with the experience he's got, then showed us that next step that Jake perhaps could have taken given the opportunity. But um, but yeah, I'm excited to see Dobby back. I think he did have unfinished business, so I'm glad he's getting another opportunity. Um, but yeah, also a little bit uh, heartbroken for Jake that he won't get that opportunity in GP next year. Yeah, well, it's a tough business, isn't it? If we if we come back to focusing a bit more on you, Michael, and, and again, more questions coming. I'm trying to get as many answers as, as I can. If I, ca- I haven't got to a question, I can only apologise. But uh, I will ask this one, which is a little plug for us because uh, uh, from our Crash YouTube channel. So do make sure you check out that and, and give it a subscribe. Jordan, who does all our brilliant videos, uh, wants to ask you, was there a moment when you rode in MotoGP when you saw a rider do something and just thought, wow, how has he done that? <laughs> Actually, uh, Mark, in, in 2013 and 14, I used to see him several times in throughout practice uh, weekends. And he'd, 
he just had that aggressive factor, but he'd come drifted up the inside, missed the apex, completely blow the corner, still drag it around there. And, and it, most other people would, you know, they know I was in a CRT bike, they just blow by you if they wait till you get round the corner and he just smoke you on the straight. But he just was attacking every single corner and his ability right from the word go on. I remember actually being at my first test in Sepang and half the paddock were saying he's going to have to adapt. He's going to have to smooth things out, change his style because this is never going to work. He'd crash too much. But actually watching those initial <laughs> laps he was doing back in 2013 in his first season, it was a joy to behold to witness it. And it was a bit special. It actually wasn't the fastest way because you would see the likes of Jorge Lorenzo and you'd follow him and he was pinpoint accurate and it was just so smooth to watch. It was like silk. But then Mark was just aggressive on the absolute limit. And um, yeah, it was interesting to watch the two Varian riders uh, close up and, uh, in that season. But um, but yeah, I think Mark was the one for me doing stuff that I knew just wasn't wasn't possible on two wheels, in my opinion. But he's done that for years, hasn't he? <laughs> Well, so Wissam has asked, uh, Rossi or Marquez? <coughs> oh, that's a tough one. Uh, both uh, both are very different, very different um, approaches. I, I was always a fan of Valentino, but he's been a chameleon as well, changing from 500 two-strokes to, to V5 four-strokes to, um, to then adapting to Yamaha. He didn't quite adapt to the Ducati, but I think the longevity of his career and still in 2015 battling for that championship with um, with the the young crop coming through, so I think what Valentino's achieved and w- what he's done with the smile and the people he's brought into the paddock, you know, from that perspective, no one will ever touch Valentino Rossi. But Mar Marquez for his raw speed, like a Casey Stoner before him, just witnessing that boundary breaking ability to to uh, create a new riding style that everyone's emulated to be the the really a pioneer out there who's who's just uh, pushing the barriers every single weekend, pushing those boundaries and what's possible. I think, yeah, mm. I couldn't pick either either one of them to be superior to the other, but both exceptional talents. Impossible question, impossible. Um, and actually, this, this one, <laughs> next one, could be both for for, for both of you really. Uh, Marty Hill, um, uh, Michael, who is the best teammate you've ever had in your racing career? Well, that's an interesting one. I've had some some uh, good teammates over the years. Back in in um, in my early days, being team with Jeremy McWilliams was for me something a bit special because I always looked up to Jeremy through my younger years. We got to be teammates in BSB for for Jez's first year back into a national championship. Then um, had good fun with the likes of Brock Parks. Brock had just gone through a divorce and was um, was. Uh, drowning his sorrows that year so we had some good Sunday nights together a few beers and that side of it was good fun um but yeah I think uh actually um yeah I've never had a bad teammate so I've got on with everyone whenever I was in BSB with uh with Tommy Hill with uh Christian Eden with um Michael Rudder before that with um with all the guys throughout my career it's been uh yeah it's been been um, always good to have that good relationship you always reach a point in some time inside the garage whenever you want to be beating your teammate but I always keep managed to keep it cordial and, and I'm, I'd say I'm friends with them all now which is a nice thing no bitter fallings out then Keith uh, God, who was your favorite teammate <laughs> <laughs> uh, you obviously haven't um, because you don't go back far enough because you're too young Harry you, you you've not seen some of the um the previous press back in the day, um, probably one of the the, the most. Uh, I mean, one of the most difficult um, teammates that I ever had was obviously Sheen at Suzuki when I rode with Suzuki. Um, Barry and I 
and we'd, kn- we'd known each other for a, for a couple of years, purely and simply because you know I'd been drafted in the British Transatlantic team when uh, when I was going quick, and and I joined Barry later on at Suzuki when they decided to sign me up as well. And his mum and dad, Frank and Iris, had looked after me and my then the mother of my eldest daughter, Carolyn. Um, when we first got to Grand Prix, we were youngsters, never had any food, never had any money. Frank and Iris would always look after us, and Barry, of course, in later years became my teammate, and 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 kind of. Once you become, as Michael just said, you know, competitive, trying to keep it cordial, well, you never really could. I mean, you never really could. And there were all sorts of shenanigans that went on behind the scenes in Suzuki at that time when uh, Barry was sort of, he was obviously the big star. But at the time, he was coming back off of a massive injury and and I was beating him, uh, even in Grand Prix. So, um, so it was difficult for him. I mean, I'm not putting myself in the same place as Sheen. He was a great. Um, but at the time, you know, I was going quite quick and it was a bloody lesson to learn the politics of a team back in the day you didn't have all of that you know michael will be very very familiar with the political landscape nowadays in broadcasting in in racing in in that side of things whereas we were completely oblivious to it ignorant even of politics of, of of your own personal politics let alone your own team politics and the wider world's politics it was something you never touch you you race you race motorbikes you just enjoyed riding motorbikes that's all you particularly did but from a teammate point of view i think sheeny was the one where i had to grow up and i had to learn a lot when it came to broadcasting i don't know where michael's inspiration comes from or or, or what he looked at and thought you know that might work for me i quite like that that that's the way i would like to be seen or do for me, it was Sheen, because whenever you saw Sheen in an interview, um, he would always say exactly what he needed to say for the broadcaster so they never, ever dumped the piece that he was involved in. And he always managed to fit in that piece the relevant points that he wanted to get across. Sponsor, you know, what's coming up next, what Barry Sheen's, you know, week is going to be like. It was a really skillful way of manipulating the media but still giving them what they want without them dumping it. Because editing is, is the worst thing. Obviously, you can you know, you know, can say what you like to a broadcaster, but if they don't like it and it's going out later, they'll edit it down to nothing. A bit like this podcast. <laughs> I might not be in it. By the time you've... <laughs> but the point being that, that, that that's the way Sheen operated. And he was a, he was a professional. Oh, he was a global icon. I mean, you've got to look at him as he was a superstar around the world when the world championship was a European championship. You know, he, he reached parts of the world that, 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 that weren't reached by our own series at that time. So Sheeny probably was the, the biggest, certainly the biggest name I ever rode with. Um, certainly the, the man I learned the most from, um, not perhaps riding wise, but every, every other aspect. Well, let, let's put that to you, Michael, shall we? Just on the on the broadcast side, how how was that to to adapt to suddenly, you know, being being a broadcaster? Because you know, not every former rider or rider, current rider, can can make that jump very well. But it certainly seems that he didn't did you not want, want to do, do it. it. He didn't want to do it. I can tell you, it took persuasion. <laughs> yeah, weirdly, I still I was thirty seven years old or thirty six when I first started, and I was still just as a racer you're so focused on what you're doing with racing i'd wanted to keep racing and i still felt that i had a lot to give as a bsb rider and world endurance rider and um and yeah i, I was actually was very fortunate conversation with keith and keith was the one who got me the job in, in bt sport i got to dip my toes in in 2018 and do it alongside bsb commitments and towards the end of that season then the opportunity to, to go full-time 
the year after was presented to me, but it meant obviously stepping away from racing. And at first I was like, no, I'll keep racing. And then I thought about it and spoke to my <laughs> friends, family, and got a, a bit of advice and thought, you know what, the time is right. Sometimes it takes something to happen to to know it's time to step away from racing, but I probably would have been still racing now at 40 years old. I'd have been still out there pushing if the the um, broadcasting career hadn't, uh, hadn't sort of landed for me. So it's worked out really good. And I've got to say thanks to Keith for, for um, believing in my ability. I had got a little experience, a few dips into World Superbike with with Eurosport. I'd done some BBC Northern Ireland stuff with the Northwest 200. And I knew I could talk at least. I could, and I felt comfortable enough in front of the camera. And then whenever you make the transition commentary so different again from from being asked a question as a pundit. So it's been a learning process and one I've enjoyed actually getting my teeth into that as well. That's been brilliant to watch. I'm assuming Keith takes commission, obviously, um, from that. Or <laughs> I tell made you a what, mistake there, Keith. It's uh, from 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 all of our points of view. I think it's television. It, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because I mean, the, the the thing I always set out to be. I became a presenter on television back in the day. Obviously, uh, uh, you know, I went to commentary some six or seven years ago to those that are very young. But I always presented television. The only reason for that was money. I didn't want to see myself on on TV particularly. But my style, I would hope, and I would hope it was recognised, and I'm going to be mortified if anybody writes in and says the opposite. But I always wanted to make sure that the the, the star that, that was on our show was the star. I didn't. I don't believe it's about the presenter. I don't believe it's about the the, the guy that is the presenter is re, or the girl that is the presenter really should be enhancing the the people that they are presenting you know the races the riders the sport itself yeah of course you can be so good at it you become a star yourself but it's still the main focus for me was always on the people that were in the show the people that were providing the show for us and uh, and and that's basically the only and I didn't learn that from anybody that was just how I wanted it to be for for me and I think Michael I could see how good Michael was with his words he could make a complicated bloody rule simple and make it in a sentence and again i'm blowing smoke up your kilt again michael i started the show by doing that and i'm doing it again now but it was a skill you had that you didn't really recognize but i knew how difficult it was to achieve what you seem to be able to do easily so that's how that came about and that's why i was at probably i mean you're the only one ever that i've been a little bit forceful over saying you should take this on um there were two reasons for it you you with respect your riding career wasn't going to get any better than it was at the point you were at at that time. Your age, you weren't going to get any younger. These are all very harsh lessons <laughs> yeah, that we learn. It's very hard to give up riding, um, particularly when you enjoy it and you're, you're still relatively good at it. But the point being is that, that I could see a long career in broadcasting for you around our sport, and you kind of it kind of needed that nudge. You just kind of needed that little tiny nudge into it. And look where it's gone. I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, it's a it's an example to anybody, any rider, all those riders that that kind of in their heart still want to ride, but know it's it's all but over. Uh, you've got to make that jump. If you see the opportunity, you've got to grab it. And I think that that's again. I mean, I'm 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 actually quite, pr- I, I, and I don't take a mission by the way. I am absolutely proud of what Michael's achieved. I really am. And he and he does things. I mean, here's, here's one that really blew me away. The first time that he had to stand and do a piece to camera. Doing a piece to camera, Harry, you'll be familiar with this. Pete, you might be as well. But when you have to stare at the camera in a noisy environment with a load of goons all around the back of the camera, <laughs> all looking at you, 
as well as the camera looking at you. And you've got, you know, a sound guy and a, a, the, obviously the cameraman's there as well. And they're, they kind of got to move on to the next piece quite quickly. And you've got to say 10 or 15 or 20 seconds worth of words. And they're specific to go into the next piece or into that particular part of the show and to look at the camera and deliver that in a meaningful way without looking like a complete dick. <laughs> well, for me, obviously, for Michael, he did it really, really well. <laughs> and I remember the first time I remember thinking, huh, watch out for this boy. He's on his way. Well, I, I hope you've got a, ni- a nice Christmas present, Michael, after all that. Uh, <laughs> look, there's, um, there's, uh, there's, uh, you do a fantastic job as well on the BT coverage. That, that, that doesn't even need to be said. But there's a couple more listener questions that we do just have time for. So I've chosen some meaty ones uh, for you. Pete will like these as well. Um, the first one is from uh, Nick Manning. And I know, I know Keith will definitely have something to say on this, but we'll come to Michael first. Uh, with the inevitable, inevitable rise of electric vehicles, and the impending ban on uh, internal combustion engine vehicles in the next 10 years or so. How long do you think, if at all, uh, before Dorna decide uh, to allow electric bikes into the current classes like they did uh, with CRT? Honestly, I don't see that ever happening. I just, I think there's uh, there's life in the internal combustion engine with um, synthetic fuels, with direct air capture, with making a carbon neutral sport. Mm. Yes, we're never going to be fully carbon neutral, but there is a way that the bikes will run completely carbon neutral. So I know the, the actual technology is available now that we could we could produce a fuel that, that is carbon neutral and we could run the GP bikes on it, similar octane. And that would be from um, using hydrogen energy, essentially with the direct air capture and then, and then turning that into a synthetic fuel. So the technology is there. I don't think there's any boundaries that... that will mean that we have to kill off the internal combustion engine. There will be an electric class. I believe Moto E will continue to grow and fair play to it, but it's not my thing. I, I don't see the, yes, we're racing two wheels and a set of handlebars and bike boys are racing against each other, but I don't, I think it loses a lot of what I love about the sport, the noise, the, the, the delay in that transition from picking up the throttle to feeling it through the rear tire, you know, the, through your, your, your drivetrain that you get on a bike, you don't have that electrics instant. So just even the, you speak to the riders, it's not the same feeling. So for me, I'm not against electric vehicles. I like them. I considered getting a Tesla myself, but I see the, the um, possibilities of, of all these different um, carbon neutral uh, solutions going forward and working together. But for me, we're never going to kill the internal combustion engine. And I think, uh, MotoGP will have a long future with that that power plant underneath it. Maybe a hybrid, perhaps, but not not a fully electric one. Okay. I loved you until you said I'm considering a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> so, Keith, that's never happening in your book, is it? Um, well, it's got to go a long way yet. And the trouble is that the hype is, is, I mean, I don't want to bore everybody with stuff that we've already been over on this podcast before. But, I mean, I just think that the electric um, brigade in, in this country is, is it's, it's a bit like the diesel thing where they were shouting and hollering that diesel was got to be so, you know, because it, it was it was a better, better form of propulsion for more efficient, so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden somebody worked out that it was noxious as hell. I think electric vehicles in town, in cities, yeah. I mean, I think from a, the, the byproduct on a on an electric vehicle is brilliant. Um, but the whole concept of it being carbon neutral is just a complete fallacy. It's just mm. wrong. You know, the, the, the making of batteries, the digging up of pressure metals, the, the making of a battery and then having to, you know, where are you going to dump it in five years' time, just like your phone battery when that's gone wrong? 
you know, let's dig a big hole and stick all this stuff in. It just doesn't work for me. And as Michael said, on a more serious note, other than me being as flippant as usual over electric vehicles, um, you know, there are other technologies. And I think where it's going to where it's going to prove is in Formula One. I think Formula One are ahead of the game on this and they've they're probably going to pick up this you know, earlier than the MotoGP will. But there are fuels out there, there are fuels and, and motors being developed that can run, you know, virtually carbon neutral with, without all the bull that we get around electricity. I mean, it, it's 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 a funny thing. I was speaking with one of the major power distribution people. I, I mean, we won't go into why I would be speaking to people like that. But Western Power here are concerned in this region about where the delivery of the extra electricity that we will need for the national grid to run all this stuff on if we go as quickly as they're aiming to go with the electricity. I can just see it being delayed and delayed and delayed and being overtaken by a better technology at some stage in the not-too-distant future, which hopefully will keep our internal combustion engine going on a racing circuit because, honestly, if it all goes electric, it's yeah. terrible. It's just, who wants to listen to that bloody wine, honestly? <laughs> and the, you know, the weight of the things at the moment, they are so they are nowhere near in a situation where we can have them in a proper racing series. It's not a Grand Prix. It's a World Cup, Moto E. It's not considered a Grand Prix. Dorna covered off what happened to Formula One. In other words, somebody grabbed the rights to the electric series um, and basically work it outside of the, of the then Eccleston package. Um, Dorna were quite clever in that they brought in Moto E alongside just in case they covered off the possibility of a, another world championship gaining momentum uh, in parallel to their own MotoGP series. But those bikes are so far behind in, in, in real technology, in suspension, in weight, in performance, in longevity. They can't even do, they can't do more than six or seven laps and they've run out of gas. You know, it's, and, and when you, when you turn up at a racetrack and there's not enough power at the racetrack to, 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 to actually recharge the Moto E bikes. And there's this bloody great cable that goes 100 yards around the back to some dirty great spewing diesel generators to, to give them the actual power they need to, to race on. It's all smoke and mirrors. We we we've had we've had the discussion so many times, especially in our, in our Moto E focus show. Um, so I, I don't want to dredge up old things, Pete. But it's it's difficult, you know. Hearing Michael and Keith, it's difficult to disagree with that. I would argue that yes, I think in the first year of I, I'm not entirely sure of Moto E, but certainly of Formula E, you know, with the, the diesel generator thing, that was a bit farcical. But I know that has changed and that has stopped, and it is more sustainable. But, but do you find that difficult to to disagree with with Keith and Michael? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, in a way, maybe we need to reframe the, the the conversation. You know, at the moment, we're looking at ways to contribute to society in the future through renewable fuels or technology. But we could also do it with safety. You know, we spoke about before is that there are ways to improve, use the airbag technology to warn people of, um, you know, riders of, of accidents ahead. Alicia Spargo kind of went further than that. He was saying that he wants and part of his discussion of what to do with improved safety on the with the smaller classes is, you know, maybe we'll get to a stage where automatically, you know, race control could just, you know, lower the revs of the bikes in a certain sector if there's an accident. If there's a rider, rider comes off the bike, airbags deployed, the bikes automatically slow down. Now, you know, that's a long way off, I think. But I think that if safety could just, be improved in that way, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> but if... I can see race direction suddenly. 
<laughs> I, actually, I think it would be it would have to be automatic, wouldn't it? I think it, yeah, you couldn't even have race direction doing a, it. A but, big red button, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone stop. But um, you know, we are hearing a lot of this this uh, anti collision technology that's coming with these these vehicles these days. All cars have all these cameras and sensors on for parking, all of this kind of thing. I think that there's ways that that motorsport can contribute. At the moment, it's all focused on, well, we need to be doing renewables because that's obviously the big issue for the industry. But as, as, as the guys have been saying, really, the car industry is probably going to decide a lot of what the technology is for motorbikes because they're going to pump so much money in. They've got much bigger budgets to use and they will develop the systems that we will then adapt in in bike racing, certainly in performance bike racing. I think electric will be useful for the small, very small, as we see, kind of this e-bike scooter category that's kind of merging together. I think that could work in that situation, but it's hard to imagine, as Michael says, that you know the Grand Prix classes can suddenly go to electric because the, the limitations on the power are so big. So yeah, I think it's it's expecting a little bit much for, for that to happen. Yeah, and you've segued so brilliantly there because I did want to just, as a, as a cheeky small question, Michael, I saw on your Instagram that you've been testing one of these new electric scooter bikes that's coming for next season. I just, I'm just fascinated by this championship in particular. What, what, what was it like? Like, do you have, have you got your eye on it for next year? Do you want to be part of it? <laughs> well, I, I obviously wouldn't have the time to be part of it, but I did. I was quite wow. intrigued by it. Obviously, the the micro scooters around the the cities. I've, I've rode them in in Austin, Texas. Actually, last year, or sorry, 2019 was the first experience I had. I was like, oh, these are quite a cool thing to ride. And now they're they're definitely increasing in popularity. And um, Alex Wirtz, uh, from former. Formula, former Formula One driver had uh, contacted me about uh, testing it and get, given my impression. So I went and had a spin on it and was really impressed. Actually, it's two wheel drive. It's got a lot of power. I was riding it knee down, which nobody really does at the moment because I just feel more comfortable with me down and lower center of gravity. So it was quite a fast thing to ride, but I'd seen Bradley Smith tested it the other week and he rode it standing up the, the typical way you would expect to ride a, a micro scooter. But yeah, it was quite impressive actually, but similar restraints, short distances, having to cool the, the battery and then recharge it in the time frame. But what they're planning to do with the ESC series and race in cities and, and have heats and knockouts. And I think it'll be a great spectacle and one that I'm interested to see how it progresses. So yeah, I've always, always liked to, to experience new things and it was quite a, quite an interesting test on it and there's definitely some potential from the the little scooters that it was definitely more powerful than i imagined and and actually how it could corner and everything as well it was quite an impressive bit of kit you should come to northampton michael we have a we have an electric scooter grand prix every single night of the week (laughs) really (laughs) we are part of the experimental series and um, there's little old ladies knocked over hedges. There's um, <laughs> bikes left laying in the street, in the streams, chucked on the railway lines. We've we've got boy scooters everywhere. Yeah, I'm. I'm fascinated idea. by this little championship. I think it's going to be nothing like it, is there? It would be, I think it would be brilliant. But uh, look, Michael, we've taken up so much of your time. I want to ask you one more question that's come in uh, and, and I think this is a good one for everyone just to chime in on and um, to sort of round things off. This is from uh, Babe Mukhal. Um, do you think uh, the latest developments by some factories uh, like the Aero and the Wings, uh, the whole shot device, rear scoop electronics and all of that is making MotoGP a bit more like Formula One where machine has more significance in the final outcome uh, than the man is Burgess's claim that MotoGP is twenty percent bike, eighty percent rider. Still true? Do you think? Um, it's a difficult one to say for sure. In some ways, I would actually argue the the opposite and now say that it's more man than machine than it ever was in the past because 
you had disparity. You had uh, you had an NSR 500 Honda back in the 90s that absolutely smoked everything else down the straight. So you had a speed advantage, whereas now very little to to take between horsepower between uh, corner and between tire. All the tires are obviously it's a control tire, control electronics. So the actual um, input now it's more uh, rider crew factory it's a it's a whole package and that all has to come together to to be a champion but then whenever you boil it down to Fabio versus Peco versus Vinales versus Jack Miller I think it is the rider on the day that really steps up and makes the difference because the level of the equipment is so similar and it is thanks to all those developments so every manufacturer have had to they've had to step up Aprilia have been the the latest to join the party and all their upgrades and bringing it to that that level and now we've got six manufacturers that have bikes that can win races we've never had that in the past it's always for a long time it was only Honda and Yamaha then it became Honda Yamaha and Ducati then Suzuki have joined the party again KTM have joined the party in the last two seasons and now Aprilia are there as well so for me it's a it's a golden era of MotoGP, and and I would say that the rider who wins the championship, if it is Fabio Quattararo, is the best rider, irrespective of his equipment, because there's so many other bikes and riders on the grid with a similar structure, similar team, similar package, similar bike, and they didn't quite make it happen. So I would say now more than ever, it when the rider wins the championship, they are the most deserving rider. Could be argued that Yamaha is the least of the. Um... Alien machines, really. When True. you look at the Ducati, it looks like a spaceship, and the Yamaha <laughs> looks like a motorbike. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's just well, coming from a Formula One background as well, it is sometimes there's an argument. You know, we don't want all this tech stuff, do we, Pete? It kind of ruins the racing a little bit. We want to see the raw, you know, man versus man, and it, or racer versus racer that you should say. But you know, it, it, do what do you think, Pete? Do you agree with that? What Bevis said, or do you agree with the, with the guys? I think, I think it's, you need the balance of both, don't you? I mean, MotoGP is supposed to be the prototype class. So, and we want it to be, you know, the problem we've had is that Superbike and MotoGP for many years was hard to distinguish for people that didn't know the two sports quite well. So it, it's great now that people can see visually these differences, that the devices that you mentioned, we can see them. That's the other great thing. You know, we might have had fantastic technology before hidden inside an engine and, and we never knew about it or, you know, a stunning breakthrough with the electronic software. Well, you know, there's, there's nothing that we could see as, as you know, fans and, and media that, that tells you that's happened. So it's great to see things that, that visually people are interested in. It gets people talking about the sport. And as Keith said, that the stat earlier about all of the podiums, I mean, it, it's, it's so close, as Michael said, that it, it's, it's got both, both sides. It's not that races are being won just because someone's got this technology. It's, it's just that the, races is so, the racing is so close that the technology matters, even if it is just a tenth of a second a lap. Suddenly a tenth of a second is meaningful. Um, I mean, Michael's years in MotoGP, I mean, it must, when you think back now, it must seem like a crazy adventure for you, Michael, you know, to take a superbike engine and build a frame and go up against Honda, Yamaha, you know, as you guys did back then. And then you look at the, the, the satellite bikes now and, and they are, you know, Frankie Morbidelli and, and, and Fabio winning three races each last year, more than the factory Yamaha team. I mean, it's it's been such a turnaround to get to this stage, isn't it? And I think... That they they've got it right. I think the the slight fear is the technical technical freeze is ending. What's going to happen next year? Are we going to see gaps appear? That's maybe the question mark that I that I might have. But otherwise, I'm I'm I mean I'm a big fan of the tech. I know Michael is as well. 
Well, it's uh, it's certainly going to be uh, exciting going into to next year, and uh, plenty of discussions to have as well. As we keep keep saying this year, can't wait for next year, but we're ex- we're enjoying this year as well. We're getting into the uh, the final few rounds of it. Michael, I, I, thank you for firstly for coming onto the show, and giving up your time. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on. Uh, before we let you go, though, uh, we us three will be back for our, our preview show for uh, Misano next week. While we've got you, Michael, who's your money on? For Mizano, I think Peko, again, he was so strong there in the no. first visit. I think it's hard to look past him, but I was impressed with Fabio giving, digging in, taking chances that he didn't need to do in the race there. So, yeah, he wouldn't rule out Fabio, but I think it's going to be another duel between those two. It will certainly uh, be exciting, hopefully, nonetheless. Well, that is it from us here on the uh, the Crash MotoGP podcast. We shall return with you uh, this time next week for more MotoGP chat as we preview uh, Miss Sano. But you can keep up to date with all the very latest as ever on Crash.net. Any questions, we try and get them answered as many as we can. I hope if I've missed your question today, I'm so sorry, uh, but we, we are limited on time. But thank you for sending them in. Do continue to do that in all the usual ways in the comments section or tweet Instagram or Facebook us. Just search Crash. Moto GP. And please do leave us a review uh, wherever you get your podcasts as well. And we shall see you right back here next week. Bye bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.